Good evening. This is Cinema 60. The rain didn't last long, did it? You know what I think? I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them, and none of us can ever get out. We scratch and, and claw, but only at the air, only at each other. And for all of it, we never budge an inch. Sometimes we deliberately step into those traps. I was born in mine. I don't mind it anymore. Oh, but you should. You should mind it. Oh, I do. <laughs> but I say I don't. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. It's, uh, it's Tony Perkins time. I know. All the complaining that you do whenever we have to do a bootleg Bond episode, I'm the one who complains whenever we have to do one of these giant double-sized episodes. But at the same time, like, how how can we not do that if we're going to pick someone like Anthony Perkins? Yeah, I mean, we try and pick people who don't have a ton of movies. I don't know. There's just no way to do it. The, the idea of the show is to discover like lost gems and the only way to do that is to like watch every single thing that somebody like tony perkins does and and uh you know and if we watch them we have to talk about them so what are we gonna do i guess we'll just try and keep it short with each movie but it's a good one this is an interesting one and yeah, I mean, really, our, our goal here is just to sort of watch the movies that are, are lesser known. And also, I think the big excuse was to watch Psycho, which for, you know, one, we tend to avoid the biggest films of the 60s. So we want to actually get one of those out of the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number two, I'd never seen Psycho. This That's is my psycho. first time. <laughs> I know, like, it's like one of those things where I don't even bring it up because I don't want someone to, like, take my Kino card away, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, like, but it's true. I hadn't seen it because, you know, that's the same thing for me. It's like if if something's so big, I always feel like, ah, you know, I'll get to it one day. And then I don't. Or, like, then I feel like, well, I don't know. It's never going to live up to the hype and yada, yada. But so, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it. But, um, But, yeah, it was this was a good excuse to do a bunch of stuff. And it ended up being interesting. This was very interesting, unexpected, not at all what I expected for Anthony Perkins in the 60s. But um, I don't know if you, this was pretty much what you thought was going to happen. I knew that he made a lot of movies in Europe in the 60s, that we weren't going to get a lot of Hollywood junk. And, and that's how it turned out. Most of this stuff that we watched is not very well known at all because it was made in France. Um, and, and there are definitely some treasures in there. I really like just about everything we watched quite a bit. Take notes while you're listening to this episode, folks, because they're, they're a bunch of good ones. Do we want to get some basic Perkins information out of the way before we start? I, I mean, I didn't dig too deep into Anthony Perkins. He got a start as a stage actor, became a, a teen idol for, uh, for Paramount, was one of the last people they had under contract he eventually ended up buying out of his contract with paramount after psycho and he was being groomed to be a gigantic star and he you know in the late 50s he was he was well on his way but we're sort of picking up his story in the 
beginning of the 60s when uh, he's getting a little bit older and his uh, matinee idol sheen was starting to fade a little bit. I mean, he was definitely like one of those actors who was in all the like teen magazines and he recorded some songs. Yeah, he had like a whole singing career, right? Not a whole singing career, I don't think, but he had a few few songs that he recorded. He's he's definitely he's a, a singer. He's got a nice voice. Nothing that we watched was a musical. I'm not sure he even made any musical films, but he did quite a few musicals on stage. There was singing in one of these. Yeah, well, he manages to get some singing in in a few of these, but none of them you would call a musical. No, you're right. And I I, I think the the elephant in the room here, of course, is that uh, he was gay. And everybody knew it. And a lot of uh, the problems he had with Paramount and and his career in Hollywood had to do with the studio execs wanting to heterosexualize him to keep his sexual preference uh, out of the public eye. Uh, he, He dated Tab Hunter for a long time. They were really serious and the studios kept pushing them both to to break up, to not be seen with each other and. Yeah, so he sort of, even in the 60s, he became sort of a, a gay icon and that uh, I, I think uh, people would often watch his films, watch, uh, you know, looking for hints at his, uh, at his sexual preference. And uh, it, uh, it made him, you know, turned him from kind of a, a big Hollywood star into more of a sort of cult figure, I think. In the in the sixties, even though he made Psycho in 1960, and that it's his biggest movie, everybody knows today. Most people know the name Norman Bates even better than they know the name Anthony Perkins. Um, he began the sixties with his biggest hit, but then he hijacked his career a little bit. I mean, not that's not a good word for it, but he sort of uh, took an alternate route. Uh, you know, didn't uh, ran away from Hollywood. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, but well, um, that happens in the course of the movies that we're talking about. So I think we, we can't help but bring up his uh, his move to Europe while we're talking about these films. So I'll just I'll I'll leave it at that. Do you have anything else you want to add about his career leading up to the sixties? Yeah, I mean, I just it, it, his sexuality is pretty interesting, actually, and and it's it's not really what we're going to talk about during this podcast. But um... maybe you're not. I'm I'm gonna. Oh, we can bring it up. But I just mean like it's intriguing because if you look at Anthony Perkins uh, and and how he dealt with his sexuality and how the industry dealt with his sexuality throughout his career, you do get a good picture of what it was like to be gay in the 60s. And there's a lot of rewriting his the history of Perkins and his sexuality because he was apparently very open about being gay, very open. And I think that you get a lot of this, um, uh, you know, because later in life he, he tried conversion therapy and, and uh, I think he was a moody guy in general. You get a lot of people that like to project, you know, Norman Bates onto him and say like, oh, this is, he was, you know, ashamed or he was angsty and all of this stuff. And yet the interviews with people that knew him seemed to to paint the opposite picture of him. And even his own interviews, I, I found uh, this great interview with Anthony Perkins from 1983 with Brad Derrick at People Magazine called uh, Return of Psycho. It's on their website archive. And he's very open about a bunch of stuff in this interview. One of the things he's open about is how when his father died at age of five, 
and his father was an actor. He and his mom ended up getting becoming very, very close in a very codependent and a bit toxic kind of way. She started becoming touchy feely to the point that she was sexually harassing him. And she created a bunch of, you know, she blurred a bunch of lines on top of the, the anxiety of having lost his father. He, he grew up being sort of having a very strange relationship with women in general it's on top of him already being gay. And so you get a lot of these stories of him like running away from all of these like leading ladies that we're, we're going to get into as a bunch of like hotties. It's like, like a bunch of people where you're like, shit, like, like, yeah, I guess if Bridget Bardot asked me out, like, sure. Yeah, of course people, uh, you know, like people, you know, we'll call him bisexual, but really it seems that he was a uh, homosexual, even though later in life, again, he tried to use conversion therapy to, you know, to this is idea that he had to fix, you know, his himself. And so, I mean, electroshock therapy he used, like, he was yeah, serious it, about it. And he married like Marissa Berenson's sister and had two kids and was was really trying to to lead the uh, the heterosexual lifestyle in the seventies. Yeah, and it was him and his and his boyfriend at the time, Grover Dale, who he had been with for like several years. And the two of them just decided at the end by the seventies, like we're not going to be gay anymore. But you know, in in the end, he you know you can't change who you are, and conversion therapy is cruel at best. So. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, like, I think that he was, he had this confusion. I think he had this probably, I would say that if he had any self-hatred, it sounds like it was really more about peer pressure than it was about him being comfortable in his own skin. Because apparently, again, apparently he was very open and very happy to be who he was until, you know, everyone, including, you know, Hollywood told him he couldn't be. So, so the, the story of his, of his sexuality is, is very interesting. And there, there's a lot of, interesting interviews with him and, and other people that he knows. I don't, did you ever watch that tab hunter documentary? I watched that. No, it's so it's okay. It's interesting, but yeah, so um, we'll talk about this again. We'll touch upon this again as we go through these movies, because it is definitely a, a very strange. <laughs> well, I mean, his, his real life Oedipal complex gets uh, replayed in these movies that he made over and over again. Yeah. I mean, no less than, three of these movies are very specifically about that. So it's, it's kind of interesting how these movies reflect his real life, but yeah, we should just, uh, we should get into it because we got a lot of movies to talk about. Yeah. So we're going to start with something that is light and fluffy and hilariously came out the same year that psycho came out. But first tall story, 1960. When it comes to fake, you take the cake. You win the ribbon blue I know no cheat Who could ever compete With a tall story from you I never flew so high You took me to the sky Directed by Joshua Logan. This one is starring Jane Fonda. I think this is one of her first roles, or is this... The first. The first role. And your favorite, Ray Walston. Oh, I hate him. <laughs> Bunch of other. Oh, Robert Redford was in this for five seconds as an uncredited basketball player. Actually, Billy Jack is in this as one of the uh, hot athletes, hot basketball players, Tom Laughlin. Nice. So, uh, yeah. Oh, um, Murray Hamilton, who's a character actor in 
all sorts of 60s movies like Seconds um, is uh, is the coach. But yeah. The plot here is as you pretty much expect it to be. If you look at the poster of this movie, you know exactly what the plot is. It's a romantic comedy for teens. It is about this uh, honor student and basketball star at, at college, Ray Blint, who's played by Anthony Perkins. And everyone loves him. He's the number one guy at the school. Uh, Jane Fonda as, as June Ryder it has her eyes set on him and she wants him to be her husband. So she tracks down all of the classes that he's in and goes up to his professors and says, let me into your class. And then I need you to make me, I need you to sit me next to Ray so that I can marry him. The professors are both like offended that she's being this forward and also are totally fine with it. They're like, well, I guess that's all she has to look forward to. So sure. She's a pretty young thing. And, and she's sort of charmed them with her directness. And so like, but they charm. also like hate her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know that they really like it's a weird dynamic. I, I'm a big Jane Fonda fan and she looks amazing in this. But it's also like teachers. I mean, like they're literally like, why are you even in this school? If this is all you want to do is get married. And she's like, well, why else would I be in this school? she's like i'm a home economics major you know and you know all i'm here is to find a husband and i went to this school because i'm like you know i'm a tall girl and this is the only place i can meet a man so anyhow she becomes a cheerleader and she starts to stalk ray to the point where she is like in you know convinces him that that she's an expert in all of these classes that he takes she's babysitting for I forget who and invites him over to help babysit and then tries to seduce him. But he's a very good student. He doesn't want to lose the game. Halfway through this film, it becomes a Russian spy Cold War <laughs> movie. <laughs> really? Well, I guess it's a Russian team that they're playing against. So there does some international politics does get involved. I think the weird part of this is how it turns into like, you know, this town is a, like a, a, a gambling den. Like the whole, the whole town is betting on these games and there are a bunch of criminals who hang out at this bar and, and take bets on the basketball games. And it just turns into something very strange partway through. Yeah. It's like local mafiosos trying to throw the game and pay him off to throw the game. And, you know, he's too, he's too much of a good American boy to do that. So, yeah, I don't it's weird. It's a it's a weird little movie. I, I had actually been really looking forward to watching this because I thought it was going to be just more charming than it is. I didn't much I didn't really like this movie so much. I was fine, you know, like it was watchable. I, I mean, it's pretty much just good for Jane Fonda. I was I was pretty irritated by her and this movie in general. I mean, it has its moments. I actually think Anthony Perkins uses his nervous tics really well to play this straight-A student top athlete who you know, has no experience with females because he just wants to get through college before he thinks about any of that stuff. And then, But then it turns into such a horny movie. Like, it's... That's the it's, good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where it becomes entertaining, where it just becomes, like, the whole thing is just about these two trying to have sex and... and figuring out a way that they can get married so they can do it because they're they're too nice to to do it without being married first yeah they literally there's this there's a line where jane fonda's like well why don't you kiss the back of my neck but scientifically 
Like, let's find out if that's actually because there's like something that's like racist. They're like, oh, the Japanese do this or something <laughs> stupid. And they're like, cue the Oriental music. And like, yeah, it's just two attractive people on a couch kissing each other. Uh, and it's kind of hot. Not going to lie. <laughs> and then the movie in the end becomes some kind of weird ethics lesson. And uh, it stops making any sense whatsoever. I mean, maybe I just wasn't following it, but I I didn't understand what this movie was trying to do by the I, end. I don't know why this movie didn't end in a murder. <laughs> you know, I kept waiting for a shootout. Like there's all that payment and they didn't get what they wanted. And then it just disappears. Like, yeah. I don't understand like what it becomes like the ethics professor is like proving a point about how he's going to flunk him. And like, then he can't play oh, this whole, whole stupid thing. There's like a point where they're burning the professor in effigy. And I was like, just thinking, can you imagine if that happened on a campus now? That would be like national news shit. Yeah, I don't. It, this was just strange. It, and like everything that's good about it is almost a mistake, I think. Yeah, it rides on the charm of the two leads. And if you are the kind of person who that's all you need from a movie is two charming leads, then fine. This yeah, is fine, but don't, fine. It, it's not a good movie. It's absolutely at the bottom of the pile for me of everything we watched for this episode, but I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I saw Jane Fonda's debut. I have a problem with Jane Fonda being too attractive. I just think it's not fair. <laughs> mm, she's got a bit of a baby face in this one. Takes a, takes a few years for her to, her to peak. She just looks like that perfect 60s girl. Anyhow. Moving on to Tony Perkins' much more important movie from 1960, and that's Psycho. by Alfred Hitchcock. What, what is there to say about this movie that uh, people haven't said already? I mean, I can sum up the plot. Janet Lee plays Marion Crane. She works in a real estate office and this uh, Texan is buying something and she gets this uh, wad of cash, $40,000. And she's just come from um, the sex hotel with her divorcee lover, played by John Gavin. And they can't get married because he's in too much debt. And she sort of sees this cash as an opportunity to marry old John Gavin, Sam, Sam Loomis. And so that bad girl voice in her head says, yeah, I'll just, I'll just take this money. And me and Sam can can start a new life together. So she hits the road, never having done anything bad before in her life. She steals this $40,000. She ends up at the Bates Motel. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I need to say anything more after that. Y'all know what happens. Even if you haven't seen Psycho, you you know what happens to Marion Crane at the Bates Motel. Uh, she meets Norman Bates, played by Tony Perkins. He lives with his mother, in a big house behind the hotel, and um, he happens to be a psychotic murderer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird to think that I shouldn't spoil this movie. I never saw this film again until we watched it for Cinema 60, and I knew everything that happened in this film, the ending, pretty much all the deaths. I knew absolutely everything, having never seen this movie. 
The only clip I had ever seen from this movie really actively was the shower scene, probably in like a class or something, you know what I mean? Or, or on TV just continuously. That's the only stuff I had ever seen. And what really shocked me about watching this movie is that I didn't expect all that goddamn lead up. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know there was like an hour of film before they even get to the hotel. Yeah, it's it's pretty much exactly halfway through that uh, the big the big shower scene happens. And it's, it's wild. A, yeah, what's the point of that? <laughs> what's the point the of audience. any of that? I mean, I guess like I guess it's kind of you know I guess and this is something we actually were talking about in a, just recently in a Cinema Sixty where it was about killing off the main character halfway through the film. Yeah, Dementia 13 in our Coppola episode. Yeah. And so I guess that was just a ripoff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you know exactly what's going to happen to who and when, it still is shocking every time. I mean, the big, the Arbogast murder is still shocking. When we meet Norman's mother for the first time, that's pretty shocking. This movie is absolutely the game changer that, Everybody says it is like this invented modern horror. Did it? (laughs) (laughs) You don't think? I don't know. I mean, like, I just uh, see this is the problem with Psycho is that like I know every single thing about it just because like on the basis of being a living, breathing person. There's just some movies where like Jaws, it's like, you know, I never saw Jaws for ages. And then I finally saw it. And I was actually impressed by Jaws. But like, I, you know, you know, what's going to happen, you know, it's just like, there's just some of these films. And and this one, I don't it, it's it was it was definitely interesting to finally watch this. But I had I had the overwhelming feeling of like, that's it. <laughs> like, oh, I no. didn't really <laughs> find it terribly scary. And, and the stuff that really got to me, as far as being and I get I am like the biggest freaking wuss. Even stuff where I know exactly what's going to happen will still make me like jump like out of my couch. <laughs> like I'm terrible wuss with with horror movies, which is why I avoid them half the time. But um, the stuff that I thought was actually the creepiest was just like her getting her stalking around the house made me really nervous just because you know that like someone's going to catch her or when she gets like afraid of her own reflection in the mother's bedroom. Because you just expect somebody's going to be there any moment because she doesn't know. Oh, you're talking about Marion's sister. Yeah. Whoever. Yeah, Fear Miles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff like that I thought was 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 intriguing. I don't I just thought like what that that first I can't get over how boring the first hour of this film oh, is, though. <laughs> like I just it's just awful. It's just like a terrible movie. And then the second half is really interesting. But. I mean, I like her meeting once they, it's like everything up until her actually meeting Perkins, like Perkins is great in this. He's, he's, I fully understand why this was his like star making vehicle. I mean, he's delightfully awkward. This sort of like small town boy who's afraid of saying bathroom and mixed company or whatever, you know, like that kind of stuff is wonderful. I love the conversation that he has with Janet Lee in the, in their, his little back room and, and stuff like that. You know, I, all of that stuff is really interesting. The way that he also plays dumb until he realizes people are on to him and then starts to shift, I thought was really great. Oh, yeah. His conversation with uh, Arbogast, the private investigator, is even better. Yeah. Like, he is so impressive in that scene. And and he feels real. I mean, like, you can fully understand him as a character because, you know, it's like when you go to some small town 
hotel in the middle of the night, like, you know, like, this is the guy you meet, like, every time. Like, maybe they're not murderers, but, like, it's, it's that kind of person. So I, you know, that there's a definitely a, like a truth to this and in, in what, and that's why I think that this was so successful is that like, you know, he taps into Perkins taps into this very specific type of guy, just happy to be doing the one thing that he's doing and, and has no interest in broadening his horizons. And, you know, it's like the, the real horror here is what if that guy was a, was a freak, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, like the stuff with the, cross-dressing and all of this stuff i mean it's like it's okay it does you know i don't know well that's yeah i mean when you get the whole explanation of why norman bates is doing what he's doing at the end when the, yeah, that was this, stupid. yeah when the this psychologist explains it all away it's i mean the first time i ever saw this movie which was i was i was in high school or something um i i hated that i thought it ruined the movie but now each time i've seen it since then i feel like yeah it belongs there it reminds me that no other movie had attempted to do what this movie was doing before can you spell it out you used to teach this movie right i did yeah so yeah, spell it out American to me Center. like i am a, a dumb college student <laughs> About what this movie, you say that the, it never, it never did this before. Like, spell out what that means. Um, like, I know, I, I know what you mean, but I also like, I would like to hear if I'm missing something. I think it, it's horror that's um, purely based on adrenaline jolts. Like Hitchcock figured out the formula. I mean, maybe these jolts don't work for you because they've been done repeatedly since then. Then, but. Yeah, it's just, you know, horror was before this was about atmosphere and creepiness. This movie invented the like shock horror, the like where you really are terrified. People couldn't couldn't take showers for years after seeing this movie. Like it really had a psychological effect on people like it really people were scarred by this movie. It was such, it was so shocking for the time. The psychologist at the end who explains his mental illness is, I think Hitchcock felt like, or may, it may have even been, no, I, I don't think it was the studios in, who insisted, because this was pretty much just a like passion project for Hitchcock. He made it for no money at all and did whatever he wanted and was willing to take big risks because he wasn't risking studio money. So this was Hitchcock. And he loves Freud and all this stuff. So it makes sense that he would have this this long long-winded explanation of uh of his of norman bates's psychosis at the end but it also like it reminds you that this is a time when people would go to movies and not expect to be sort of left ha hanging they they'd go to the movies and expect you know all the ends all the loose ends to be tied up and like horror now it can be you know the weirdest stuff and so much can go unexplained you're just there for the the thrill ride you know, just the the experience, the the vicarious thrills of watching horror happen on the screen. This was the first movie of that type, and Hitchcock still like felt this didn't know that that the the genre would evolve into this thing where no people don't don't care why people are committing these murders or you know why any of this is happening. They just want the the thrills, the like the shocks, the. the you know, the horror, the terror, the pure terror and uh, and don't need these explanations. So, yeah, that's that's why I'm OK with the with the psychiatrist explanation at the end. And I know. And as far as you being bored by the first half of this movie, I think 
there's enough going on in this to like on a, on a second viewing, you would get more out of the first part. Like there's, it definitely sets up this parallel between Marion and Norman. You know, it even has, you hear the voice inside her head, like sort of justifying why she's, she's doing this. Like, you know, how she's never done anything like this before, but this voice in her head is saying, no, you got, you, you know, be a bad girl, do this thing. And it's sort of mirrored later by Norman Bates's mother's voice in his head telling him, you know, what to do and, and, uh, you know, blaming him for, for these murders. And, and it's, yeah, it sort of con- contrasts her feelings of guilt over this crime that she's committing. That really seems like small potatoes compared to the, these horrific crimes that, that Norman Bates is committing. And you sort of, it, it becomes sort of a, you know, crimes and misdemeanors sort of thing where you're, you, you, sort of compare and contrast the two people and they're, you know, this, you know, it's, it's a movie about guilt. Every Hitchcock movie is a, is a movie about guilt, but this one does it in a very like black and white sort of way. I don't know. I, I love this movie. I've seen it so many times and, and watching it again last night, I loved it more than I ever had before. I'm definitely open to rewatching it now that i my expectations are on the floor i mean like i like this movie i i'm like i'm kind of shitting on it now but it's just because it was fun to watch i'm always thinking someone's gonna kill me in the shower so clearly that that was implanted in my brain at a certain point so, <laughs> so you know that's that's a that's a level of paranoia i live with on a day-to-day basis um but like i i just i guess like i there was there wasn't enough to really to jolt me and I'm just so easy to to jolt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like freaking like Evil Dead 2 makes me jump and that movie is so silly. So so I don't know. I'm with you. I'm I'm just I'm I'm being the devil's advocate, I guess right now. I think watching it this far in the future. I mean, I watched it in the 80s, you know, 20 plus years later and it's, you know, that much more time has passed again since you saw it. And I think watching it at a distance, it's hard to like put yourself in the place of an audience in 1960 watching this for the first time. I remember the first time I saw it, I was disappointed. I didn't think it was that scary, but I think it's, it definitely repays or or the more you rewatch it, the, the more you get out of it and the more you can actually see what, this is doing that no film had ever done previously. I kind of wish I just wanted more time with, with Perkins and that would have been, it would have been really nice. Like the last scene in this entire film where he's just sitting there in the room and smiling. I mean, like, that's great. (laughs) I I could have, I could have had like, if it had ended with him doing an inner monologue that said the exact same thing as the psychiatrist had said, but he's just looking at the screen like that would have been enough for me. But that's, you know, I got that in Clockwork Orange, I guess. So, <laughs> I guess I'm not that surprised that you uh, were were a little disappointed by this movie. But watch it again. I'm open. I, I'm open to it. I will. I, I think that, yeah, I, the, you know, it's funny because there's just I think there's just certain movies that are so in the public consciousness that it's hard to to look at them and and remember what it was that was so great about it. And I think this is something, like I think this ties into the same thing I've I've talked about previously where it's like, you know, get, using like Picasso as an example where you just like it's so easy to take famous like really really famous people and artists uh and, and art for granted 
like even like the Mona Lisa or whatever, you know, it's like, it's so easy to take this stuff for granted. And then you go see it and you're like, it's fine. You know, like, I, like I've seen it everywhere forever. It's fine. And then someday, and then like at one point something clicks and then you're like, Oh shit. Like, have you like heard about Picasso, man? Like that's freaking talented, you know? So it's like, I, I think there's a bit of that. I, I, I feel like I'm doing cinema 60. I feel like I've been coming around more on Hitchcock than I ever have in the last couple decades of my life. So it'll, it'll get there. He's called the master of suspense. And you think that, you know, you're going to go into every one of his movies and, and get this thrill ride. But I have found that pretty much all, except for his early British movies, which are just, you know, fun thrillers that work the first time through, like all, all of his Hollywood stuff. I think they're really like, don't even work the first time you see them. You have to see his movies more than once to get much out of them. And I'm not the biggest Hitchcock fan either. I mean, I like most of his movies. I appreciate them. I don't, uh, you know, hold them up as the, the, the greatest, uh, you know, genius who ever made movies the way the, you know, the, the Cahiers du Cinema crew did or most most film studies professors do, but uh, I, there's, there's something to that guy. There definitely is. He, he, he knew what he was doing. He also knew how to layer it so that uh, you could, could watch these things over and over and still get, get thrills out of them. Hitchcock. What a guy. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Well, at this point, Anthony Perkins fled Hollywood. He, he, this is when he bought himself out of his Paramount contract and decided, well, I speak French. My nanny taught me French when I was a kid. So I'm going to go move to France and get away from the pressure to be heterosexualized in his (laughs) (laughs) movie, in his movies. And I think he already knew at this point that he would be forever linked with Norman Bates. So he wanted to be able to, to break away from that typecasting immediately. The next bunch of movies we talk about were all made in France. And in French too, as you said that he, he had learned French from a nanny and became fluent. And so he speaks in French in all of these. Uh, the first one is goodbye again from 1961. This is directed by Anatoly Litvak. And the French title is is better than the American title. It's uh, but I can't pronounce it. Amivous Brahms. Do you like yeah. Brahms? Uh, which ties into the plot of this movie, which is that Ingrid Bergman plays Paula. She's an interior decorator, and she is decorating the apartment of a woman who whose son shows up one day, and the son is actually Anthony Perkins, named Philip. Vanderbesh, they're rich, <laughs> and um, he he like immediately takes a liking to her, and you know he's a he's a lawyer and he's going through school, I believe, and so uh, you know she's sort of intrigued and tickled because she's uh, older. She says she's forty and he's meant to be twenty five, though uh, actually in real life she was forty six and he was twenty nine. I did the math. Hmm. So she's she's sort of tickled, but she doesn't really take him seriously. And part of that is because she's actually in this like 
strange relationship with Yves Montand, who plays this guy named Roger. And he's this business executive dude who is constantly on the road and is never, ever around. When he is around, he takes her out on the town and he treats her well and all of that. But then he goes off again and he always says he's on business, but what he's really doing is he's seeing other women. And she sort of is aware of this, but it's one of those out of sight, out of mind kind of things. And she doesn't want to get rid of him because she's an old maid. (laughs) So even though she knows all of this, she still loves him. In a way, she, you know, she can't, there's something about him that, that really clicks for her. And so the, the whole film is pretty much that is Anthony Perkins trying to seduce her. And, and one of the things that he does to, to seduce her is he, you know, asks her if she wants to go see Brahms and, you know, and, and he does all these, you know, he's trying to take her on these dates and she sort of keeps putting him off but he's very very charming like he'll they'll they'll both be at a club her and roger will be at a club and perkins shows up drunk and it's just like flirting with her openly and you know roger doesn't even take him seriously either because he thinks he's so young and you know eventually she starts to realize like well you know maybe um maybe i can have him you know maybe i can be with philip and and maybe it's it is nicer to be loved by somebody who's actually here than my like you know philandering half steady boyfriend or whatever he is yeah so the whole film is just this like love triangle and and sort of ingrid bergman realizing just how depressed she has been and loving you know realizing what to do with her the this love that she has for this other man roger but 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 their arrangement isn't working out for her you know it's like this weird it's it's like surprisingly mature uh, look at at a love triangle and it's not black and white it's not about roger being like evil and it's not about perkins being the perfect boy or whatever <laughs> you know so that's what i really i thought this was actually a really interesting movie i, I actually really enjoyed this have you seen this one before no i hadn't seen it not i liked it i thought it got a little melodramatic at times like there's a lot of Ingrid Bergman wringing her hands and, and, you know, being, you know, worrying whether she's doing the right thing, seeing Philip. And that got a little irritating. I I got kind of tired of her saying, I want to be with you, Philip. No, I don't want to be with you. No, I I do want to be with you. And yeah, but overall, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, I I love how (laughs) it uh, does not have a very happy ending at all. And I also like that Anthony Perkins is is far from being this perfect boy. Like he's he's this rich, spoiled brat who doesn't want, know what to do with himself. And falling in love with Paula is like has given him a purpose in life. And but then once he gets her, he again doesn't know what to do with himself. Like he's just like lies around in bed waiting for her to get home from work. And it's he's there for her. And that's a lot of the appeal in, in her eyes. Uh, but uh at a certain point, she says, Jesus, Philip, you can't make me your entire life. Like, do something with yourself. And yeah, a lot of what's in this movie I found really interesting. I mean, Anatole Litvak is, um, he's an American director. Um, he made a bunch of Hollywood movies like Sorry, Wrong Number and, and you know, The Snake Pit and things like that. Um, he And he definitely has a Hollywood touch. But the subject matter is very European. This this movie is in English, by the way. The first few movies, four, 
I guess, that he made in Europe are, are all in English, you know, just filmed in Europe. Um, it isn't until you know, after that that he, he he's making movies that are actually in French. But uh, the story, the book that this is based on was written by Francois Sagan, who also wrote Bonjour Tristesse. And it's, you, you know, it's another one of these like very sophisticated European stories about um, morally questionable men having sex with young girls and and just you know this this sort of it's it's an odd mix of european sophistication and like hollywood melodrama so it it uh it's something felt a little off for me but i did like it yeah i mean it was definitely it could have it could have been better in tone but you know, as you said, the, the realism of it at the end of the day, even though there was so much of this this dramatic, melodramatic hand-wringing, it, it always kind of settles into something that isn't hysterical. Like, it settles into this idea that, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants, and sometimes, like, that's not the best thing <laughs> for us. And I really sort of enjoyed this idea of Perkins also being pulled into this messed up relationship with these depressed people, and then becoming scarred from it this cycle of how we we sort of love and hurt each other and how then that we we then project that onto the next partner and and you know this sort of i think there's something very uh there's an intriguing and very recognizable pattern that this that plays out in this film it's interesting and also like you know eves montana i thought was he he did a really interesting job i i'm not normally that big of a fan of his Though I have to say, look, just like Don Draper in this <laughs> movie, it was like, but I thought he also like he did a good job of being this. You you can see, I thought you can see why she wants him, even yeah. though he is also just like such a selfish prick. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's good at being a sympathetic character, even though he is such a jerk yeah it's like there's really a, like that again there's no there's no villains in this except for and it may be even she she isn't at the end of the day in a strange way but she's also very sympathetic and 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 yeah i don't know this was this was very cool i i after i watched this i looked up and i saw that it was you know as you said based on a book that was uh written by a woman and i thought that that made a lot of sense <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's too bad that Bonjour Tristesse was made before the '60s because that I feel like that that movie that Otto Preminger movie really kind of in, informs kind of a precursor to the French New Wave. There's like some early French New Wave stuff that it seems a shame that that we can't talk about on this show, but maybe maybe in our love ins we can we can talk about those, figure out a way. Oh, did you say our Patreon only exclusive mini podcast love in? Yeah, yeah, those. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. I would. I would happily talk more about this movie, but I actually want people to watch it, so I think we'll just move on. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also especially cool again to to see this was like his follow up to Psycho. <laughs> like, what a great choice! I mean, what a, what an interesting pivot. Yeah, I mean, he was playing romantic leads primarily before Psycho. And uh, and I think uh, he, he didn't want to be typecast as a lunatic murderer. And uh, that's probably why he was he chose uh, romantic roles uh, immediately following. Following Goodbye Again, he made Phaedra.
directed by Jules Dassin in 1962. Another story about a uh, youngish man dating an older woman. In this case, it's uh, his stepmother uh, to, to make things even more edible. Uh, this is as as you might guess from the title, it's based on a Greek tragedy, an ancient Greek tragedy, but it's updated to to modern times. It's it's filmed in Paris and London and in Greece. Yeah, it's starring uh, Milena Mercuri, who is uh, the the wife of the director, and they had just made Never on Sunday prior to this movie, which was a big international hit. So this was them trying to keep the ball rolling and and have a. Melina's uh, international stardom uh, rising, and uh, I, don't, I don't think uh, particularly succeeded. I don't think this movie was very well liked anywhere. Uh, definitely was not uh, a hit in America. I don't think many people have seen this one. But I, you, you dislike this movie, but I actually really liked it a lot. Um, I loved how hyperbolic everything is in it. It's just so everything is pushed to the extreme in this. You've got this shipping magnate uh, played by Raffalone, who is trying to get his uh, his his wife to uh, convince his son, played by uh, Anthony Perkins, his wife is Melina McCurry, um, to uh, to go to London and convince his son to come back to to Greece and um, follow in his footsteps and take over his uh, his his shipping business. And uh, while She's in London trying to convince him to do this. They fall in love. They have a really hot sex scene that's uh, by 1962 standards, really pretty, pretty graphic. It's a lot of sweat and water and fire. And it's uh, this movie in, in general is just beautifully shot. I, I, every frame is a painting and it's just uh, gorgeous to look at the first half or the first third of this movie where it's the romance between it's the, you know, this May, December romance is doesn't quite work. I don't think that Tony and Milena have really spark too much, but uh, the movie really takes off when, when she goes back to Greece, having failed convince convincing him to come to actually telling him to not come to Greece because it would just cause problems. That if, uh, if he came to Greece, she, she breaks off the relationship and, and, tells him stay in London be a painter don't don't do what your father says but uh, eventually she's she goes back to Greece and is miserable because she can't be with Alexis uh, Tony Perkins so she reluctantly agrees when when Thanos uh, her husband says tell Alexis to come here even though he doesn't want to and she doesn't really want him to because she knows there'll be problems but he does anyway and they have you know, there's there's so much like hate <laughs> on the screen when he actually comes to Greece. Like he just he's he has so much bile in him, like he's just so venomous towards her. And and there's and she becomes a monster. And it's it's just it it really becomes this like ancient Greek tragedy. And I think it really works in this in this modern context. I had a great time with this and just a, a gorgeous looking movie. This was I, this was like the cheesiest film. <laughs> I just couldn't get into the vibe. I I don't. I, I see what you're talking about, though. I don't think that it's like necessarily like a failed film. I just like the everything it's doing was just like so hysterical and like these musical swells and the whiplash temper tantrums. I didn't think that any chemistry between the two leads. I like 
Ingrid Bergman and in, in Perkins, I thought actually had really great chemistry, but in this one, it was like totally forced. Like I just could not like, like, you know, he, his discomfort just felt like palpable, but also he's this character who just like hates everyone and seems so insincere that I just couldn't buy him doing or saying anything that wasn't like cruel, you know, like he's just so unpleasant in this movie. Yeah, that's I mean, I think that's what I really liked about this movie when it tries to pretend that these two characters, Phaedra and Alexis, are, you know, a nice romantic couple in love with each other and will last till the end of time. It's not convincing at all. But once they're back in Greece and it becomes this tragic love triangle and everybody is being horrible to each other, I I thought it was great. And it's also about these like unbelievably wealthy people who are totally disgusting and watching their lives fall apart is a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I I was really turned off by the lead. I I just thought that she was just a terrible actress. She kind of looks like Miss Robinson, actually, but I thought she was a terrible was like a lead balloon she just had absolutely no charm and no interest like i did not understand what it was about her that anyone (laughs) saw in her Mm. and so maybe if it was like someone who was having more fun i just thought she was so boring so bland we should watch never on sunday soon because she's great in that she's a ton of fun in that and it's totally opposite character to this one but i thought in this one she was magnificent as this ancient greek tragic woman like i thought she's just becomes this sort of monstrous figure so well by the end of this that uh yeah i thought she was great i just i think maybe part of my problem is it just felt like like when it's like a greek story like there's a a degree of mental distance where sleeping with your stepmom is still like fucked up but not like as creepy as this movie felt (laughs) like, I don't know. I just found the whole thing so creepy and I just couldn't even, even this high camp in this film, which had, it does have its moments. I mean, like, I think that if I had been, if I, if I had watched this with you, I probably would have done a lot more laughing (laughs) on my own. I was just like, like, this is just awful. Like, I felt like taking a shower after watching this, but that, that sex scene is hilarious. (laughs) it's like this wild sex scene it's shot with water pouring over glass and it's shot through the glass with this raging fire behind them it's insane yeah it's 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 great i mean it would would have been better if if the two leads had more sexual chemistry but it's still shot in a (laughs) it's not sexy (laughs) it's just like amazing yeah i like dark pressing over the top perverse movies like this and i know you don't so it makes sense that i was more into it than you were yeah i mean i liked you know perkins i think so he does he he really does play up this rich brat even better than he did in the previous film but i mean you know he's also like much more of a broad strokes kind of figure in this which i I think is inevitable again you know if you're going after greek myths and stuff like that it's they're always going to be kind of more broad stroke so i you know he does a great job with that i love his obsession with his with this car (laughs) he like he's just desperate to get this one car and like i mean i believed his romance with the car way more than i did with phaedra but yeah he's got a great final scene in in this movie and his car where he's singing at the top of his lungs along with the the bach 
um, that he's playing on the radio and driving as fast as he can or on the, the, the hills of Greece. And, uh, but even so. when he's looking at the car in the showroom, there's this great scene where you can also see everybody <laughs> in the back of the showroom. Cause it's all glass. You see like a crowd of people on the street that are clearly watching because, Oh my God, it's Anthony Perkins and they're shooting a movie, uh, which is pretty funny, but he has this sort of like, you know, he does this like ode to the car, uh, right in front of the showroom and, and oh, he rubs himself all over it. He's, yeah. <laughs> he makes love. He <laughs> literally makes love to the car and in front of an audience. It's, it's great. <laughs> it's amazing. And then he just like skipped back over to her and he's like, you know, isn't it wonderful? And she's like, I guess <laughs> he's really, he plays an idle rich kid in a, most of these movies. Doesn't he? I'm it's sort of dawning on me now. He's, you know, a bunch of these movies we're going to talk about too. He's, idleness even when he's not rich he's idle and doesn't know what to do with himself and that's seems to be a good role for him when he's not uh you know having sex with uh cars. women who are 15 years older than or cars um <laughs> he, he's not doing much of anything yeah i mean i guess he has one of those faces you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, the next film is uh, something we've actually talked about really briefly when we did our Sophia Loren massive episode, because you watched this movie at the time and I didn't. Yeah, I really liked it. I, I, I'm not sure you liked it as much as I did, though. Yeah, well, I remember you saying that you really liked it. And I remember at the time thinking, well, this is stupid. I should have watched this movie so that we could have just talked about it. So I did this time. <laughs> <laughs> And that's uh, Five Miles to Midnight from 1962. Again, directed by... Uh, Totally lit back. But you probably don't have to do a full summary since we already summarized it. I know. But here's the thing is like we do these big episodes and we're like, oh, yeah, like here's a movie. We'll get back to it later. So this is us finally getting back to one of those movies that we've put off. But yeah, really quickly, it's just about Sophia Loren, who is trying to leave her like abusive husband, who is Anthony Perkins. And then he uh, who has a fear of flying his whole life gets on a plane and the plane crashes. I don't want to spoil it too much because it is kind of intriguing. It has a lot of good twists and turns, but uh, basically he shows back up at her apartment after all of this and tells her that he has a plan. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll leave it at that. Even How, what is it? What, do you remember what it is that you liked about this? Like we could have gone back and listened to the episode <laughs> and I fully didn't do that. I thought, uh, I thought Perkins was great as as a creep that he like uh, he's this uh, from what I remember of this he's he's totally playing this like this idle idle guy again he's like he comes back to the apartment and you know is pretending that he's dead like everybody thinks he's dead and he so he can't do anything he's just stuck in this apartment and he you know is just like bossing her around telling her what to do and she's so miserable being stuck with him it's I think it's a great role for Sophia Loren, too, because she's so like in her movie, she's most of her movies. She's just so full of life all the time. And even in this movie, when she manages to not be around 
Tony Perkins. She's like full of life and having a great time. And then like when he shows up, she's just completely miserable again. And it's just a good thriller. It's got a lot of twists and turns and it goes and goes places you don't expect it to. And uh, I thought it was really suspenseful. I liked it. Yeah, Perkins, there's a great, I mean, even this before the plane crash, there's a lot of great scenes with him where like she's out dancing with her friends, like not even like another man or something. She's just out with friends. He catches her out dancing. She sees him across the club and suddenly she she like rushes to leave and he like slaps her in the face just for having been just gone out while he was meant to be out of town uh, you know, and he's like a total creep. He like, you know, lied about going out of town just so that he could catch her in the act of enjoying herself. Well, and, <laughs> and he then, was with a coming from a, a, a prostitute at the wasn't he? Or maybe that's after. No, afterward, he gets picked up by a prostitute because <laughs> he slaps her and she it's like a vicious slap. It's creepy. And she leaves him there on the street. But then when she when he's getting on the plane later on, you know, when he's terrified of getting on this plane, but says he's going to do it. And she like literally walks him to the airport because she just wants to make sure he's on the goddamn plane this time. (laughs) And he turns around, you know, like when everyone's kissing and hugging goodbye, he turns around and he makes this air gun at her like finger gun just to threaten her if she's like just in case you're cheating. And it's like, Jesus, like he's such a creep. Yeah. I mean, it seems like he's really playing against type here because he like he doesn't have the body type of a like a big bully of a man who's you know physically abusive but he plays it in so well like he's so weaselly like he's totally convincing even though he's not he doesn't look like the kind of person who would play this kind of character yeah and it really it, it the the fact that he's like this it brings out like just the meanest version of Sophia Loren which is which is impressive <laughs> <laughs> it's not a version of Sophia Loren you really get to see. And in a way, I now I, I regret we didn't talk about it for Sophia Loren because it's definitely more exciting for her than it is for him where this is now, what, four movies in a row where he's playing kind of just like slightly different versions of the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I like this movie fine, but it didn't like wow me. And I think that's, that's probably why it's just because we watching all of these in a row, it was like, okay, enough. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. We hate Anthony Perkins. <laughs> like, let's move on. Well, after this, he made the trial, which is another movie we've talked about already. Which I, it was a great movie. Very. Yeah. I think it was our 1962 kiss, Mary kill. This might be my favorite Orson Welles movie. It's just a terrific adaptation of a of a Franz Kafka novel where um, Anthony Perkins plays Joseph K, who's uh, being prosecuted for a crime, and he doesn't know what the crime is. I've read people interpreting this movie as uh, him uh, as his crime being uh, that he's a homosexual, that it's uh, sort of uh, about Anthony Perkins in a way. I'd like to I'd like to watch it again with that in mind, but it sort of makes sense because, you know, you have Yosef K the whole time, like having no idea what 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 crime he's committed, but also feeling guilty about it. So it, it, it sort of makes sense. Like, yes, I had these thoughts and feelings that I know are not right, but uh you know, I haven't done anything that you can you can hold against me, anything that you can prove. And, you know, it's uh, definitely there if you uh, if you want to if you want to view it through that lens. But it's just a great surreal film with a great cast. Jean Moreau, Romy Schneider, Orson Welles. It's Orson Welles favorite film of his or at least one of his favorite films. I think he said that about every one of his movies. Though. I'm sure he did, but. 
I, I actually, I mean, I think that it's one of Orson Welles' greatest films for sure. I, it's probably my favorite Orson Welles film. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. But we talk about it at length in, in the Kiss Mary Kill, so we don't need to go on about it now. But it is um, Anthony Perkins at his like nervous, guilty, half crazed best. It's almost a shame that we're not talking about it in this episode, but we we did we were really thorough in the other episode, so you got to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> the next film is now we're speaking French. Finally, yeah. Though it's funny, it's he he um kind of butchers his accent, or his accent's a little bit crappy in this one. It's very clearly you know Americanized French uh, that he's speaking. Though in following film, I think he totally loses i mean like i don't speak french but his accent like way improves in the next film but he is playing an american in this so exactly yes I, I think it's pretty on it's pretty much on purpose which i at, at the time i was just thinking like oh okay like he kind of speaks french but this is the sword and the balance Nineteen sixty-three, directed by Andre Kayat. <laughs> You're gonna have to do all my pronunciation for I French. I cannot pronounce for the life of me. Like that's when I sound like a total hick. Talk about bad accents. This movie is actually better known by its French title, Le Glaive et la Balance, which is the sword and the balance. But it's um, the other English title it's given is uh, Two Are Guilty. See, I would have called it the Glaive et la Balance. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like David Lynch for a second there. This is a cool movie. This is an interesting movie. Another interesting film that didn't really go where I expected it to go because it's just really dark, like surprisingly dark, this film. It's it's about the young son, like like a kid of this wealthy local family that gets kidnapped for ransom. And the police go after the kidnappers who were meant to, you know, meet the woman, she drops off a briefcase full of money. They pick it up and then they follow the car. The car then goes to a boat and the boat takes off right when the police are about to pull in and, and grab them. And then it becomes this boat chase. Suddenly the, you know, the heavens open up and it's a storm and they follow this boat. They're shooting at the boat and they manage the, the ki- these kidnappers manage to get all the way to, a, you know, the other shore they get off and then they finally, the cops corner them and, you know, again, it's pouring rain and they say, you know, you're surrounded. You, know, you can put your hands up. And we know that once they get off the boat, there's only two people on this boat. When they come out from behind the lighthouse, three people come out. And those three people are Anthony Perkins, Jean-Claude Brialy, and Renato Salvatore. All playing characters with names I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny... Jean Philip and Francois, the three of them. At least say at least say Jean Philippe. Jean Philippe. And yeah, so the rest of this film is a bit of a downer, but then like again, the whole film's kind of told in flashbacks, but it's this kind of boring procedural from here on out because the three of them are arrested and now the police are interrogating each of them and trying to figure out what actually happened. So now you get this kind of like Rashomon-esque, like well, I saw the two of the like everyone keeps saying it wasn't me, but it was those two guys, 
you know, so we get this, this different version of this story playing out three different ways. You know, there's always slightly different details and nobody really looks good at the end of this, but yeah, it's about trying to figure out what actually happened. And I should also mention that at some point after the, they get the ransom and they said, you know, no cops, if you, if you call the cops, we're going to, you know, kill the kid and they do. So this is about solving the murder of this child and, you know, these three men who could possibly have done it. The investigators are pretty convinced that it's just two of these people responsible, that one of the three is innocent. But, you know, obviously they all say that each one says that they're the innocent one and it's the other two people who, who are guilty. So most of the movie is trying to figure out which one of these three guys didn't do it, which is really kind of an interesting structure for a movie. I've never quite seen anything like that. And I I mean, the procedural part I actually thought was really interesting. I like this movie a lot. It isn't until it gets into the flashbacks for each of these characters where we get to know, you know, what they're all about and if they good people or not good people and if they could possibly have committed a crime like this. And it sort of leaves it up to the audience to decide, oh, this person is not capable of this. Like it, it they each give a version of themselves that makes it you know, gives a good case for each one being the one who's not guilty. But we know that at least two of them are responsible for murdering this kidnapping and murdering this kid. So it's um, yeah, it's I don't think the movie totally succeeds, but I've never seen anything like it. And it's really interesting and dark. This is so dark. I mean, all of their flashbacks, you pretty much realize that none of them are good guys. Perkins is pretty interesting, though. I mean, his character first off admits that he he's like a bit of a hustler right like he's an artist and he's trying to sell paintings and this man is like openly flirting with him and like wants to take him to toledo and like pay him millions of dollars it seems like he has done something like this before perhaps in the past and he's totally open to it and then at the last minute decides no i'm a a real artist i don't want to sell out this way but it's pretty it's like you know for 1963 you're like oh wow like they're actually they're, they're pretty much it's pretty much head on dealing with the possibility of this sort of homosexual romance. Yeah, it's the only one of these movies we watch where it is actually Anthony Perkins has plays someone who very specifically has engaged in some homosexual activity. I mean, we get a flashback to a really disturbing flashback to his college years when he is uh you know, in, in love with this uh, like frat boy and wants to get in with with them. And to, in order to do so, he gets his girlfriend drunk so they all can gang rape her. And it's it's really disturbing. Yeah. I mean, it's like straight up gang rape. He gets her so drunk. They say, like, get her drunk, bring her to the room. And then all the boys will take turns with her. And it shows you this horrifying scene where he starts to actually chicken out because he feels like he's starting to feel guilty too late, unfortunately, where you know, there's all these guys that are lined up outside of this room with this woman on a bed. And it's this really chilling scene where, you know, this the guy that he has this, you know, sort of crush on this fraternity guy, you know, takes him out and says, you did a really good job, you know. And like, meanwhile, all these other men are like entering into the room. It's like so creepy. Yeah. And it's only one of many really disturbing and, and creepy things in this movie. Like uh, Jean-Claude Brielli plays a, a some kind of real estate guy who uh, likes to pimp out his sister so that he can make these real estate deals, but then like <laughs> confronts the person that he's 
he's uh, pimped his uh, his sister off to before they can actually go through with it. Yeah, because she's like underage, so he blackmails them. Yeah, and uh, Renato Salvatore is he's a gigolo, like he just lives off this rich woman because he's this big, you know, muscly, handsome guy, not too smart, and uh, tired of his uh, sugar mama calling him an idiot and wants to wants to strike out on his own. So we think that yeah, maybe this guy is did cook up this uh this kidnapping scheme i don't know i i yeah i i want to talk about where this movie goes because it's so upsetting but it also would take away a lot of the impact if we talk about it so maybe we should leave it there i kind of want to talk about i mean i just this this is a really it's a really intriguing movie because it literally throws the end of the film to you the viewer and it wants to know how you come to terms with innocence or guilt in the face of all of the things that these guys do with the, with the death of a child being at the heart of this, it's, it's a very interesting meditation on, on what it means to be innocent and what it means to be guilty. And I, and, and it, it doesn't have any easy answers to its credit. It's very, it's a really interesting movie. <laughs> like, yeah. I think it's like more interesting to think about in a way than it was to watch, even though I enjoyed it, you know, like I liked, I think, you know, there's the, the flashback stuff I just thought was bland. Like, you know, as far as just cho- like filmmaking choices, you know, I don't really didn't need to be structured as a courtroom drama for like one third of this, but that's pretty much what it ends up being. But it still manages to sort of intercut with enough exciting flashbacks and scenes and with so many gruesome details that are just like really lurid. I mean, like there's there's just so much in this that I feel like you, you, like for, for one film to have all of these things, I like even movies now aren't this cruel. But um, yeah, and it's just it, it's not like anything you've seen. So I absolutely recommend that, that you, you seek this movie out. Even if it's not perfect, it's it it's doing something that uh, that I've never seen before. It's directly challenging you at the end of this film to to ask you which of your own biases you can you can overcome in order to declare innocence. Yeah, it becomes sort of a twelve angry men thing by the end, and you as the audience member sort of becomes a jury member, and it's really it really succeeds in, in you're, that way. You're on the stand in this film too. It it really it, it's asking you what which one of your crimes can <laughs> can you forgive in order to see innocence. You know, if 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 yeah. one guy does uh you know, oh sure, well he pimped out his sister, but well, you know, it's uh, he's my friend, you know, it's like that kind of like that degree of like what is it that you think that is for it could be for conceivably forgivable in order to prove an innocence. So anyhow, we we've talked about it, but yeah, this was a great this was a great little movie. And then Tony Perkins followed that one up with uh, something that's uh, completely on the other end of the spectrum, 1964's The Ravishing Idiot, or Ravissant Idiot. Also known as Agent 382436. Um, so this this could have qualified as <laughs> as a uh, one of our bootleg Bond movies. Uh, it's actually by the end, I, I end up liking it most more than most of our uh, bootleg Bond movies. But I'm uh, shocked. I'm shocked, <laughs> actually. 
this is the a uh, romantic spy thriller comedy with Brigitte Bardot playing uh, playing the the ravishing idiot, or maybe by the end it's actually Anthony Perkins who's playing the ravishing idiot. But uh, it's it's this whole spy sort of Cold War thing. It's actually it reminded me plot wise of that uh, Lawrence Harvey movie we watched, a, uh, a dandy in aspect because this movie is in French, made by a French director, a French production company. Um, everybody's speaking French, but it's set in England. So everyone, so it's actually a lot of this is making fun of British people and they've all got those, you know, British bowler hats. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a little, it's a little bit distracting. It sort of takes some getting used to what nationality are these people supposed to be, especially because it makes a joke like um, Anthony Perkins has this, uh, he's, he is a, a, a Russian sleeper spy who has lived for many years in England being sort of an inside man for, you know, whatever they, his, uh, his, his Soviet uh, buddies tap him to do like um, he's, he's supposed to have, have made his way into the uh, sort of the internal workings of the British government, but he's, he's kind of too lazy and too dumb to do a very good job of it. So like he spends the beginning of the movie, we just see him like he keeps um, going to this cafe so he can, uh, you know, look at Brigitte Bardot, who spends her lunches there. She's a uh, she's a seamstress at a at a fashion house, and and he just he knows when she's going to be there, and so he he's like he's always late to work, and and because he he just wants to like meet her, flirt with her, um, and so toward at the beginning of the movie, he gets fired from this job, like that he because he just never shows up, so he's sort of a failure as a. Uh, as a Soviet spy infiltrating the, uh, the, the British government. So, you know, because of his failure, he's like, Oh, I, I just could send me, send me back to Ru- mother Russia. I'm tired of being here in England. Um, but, uh, his, uh, his contact Bagda says, no, we've got one more job for you. And there's this, I mean, this, this, it's such a complicated sort of spy. Nobody knows what the other person's doing. Like it, it gets, it's really a complicated plot. It's about this fake file, this avalanche file that the the British government actually want the Soviets to steal, thinking they're getting actual secrets. And it's so it's planted in this guy's safe, who's the his wife is the the woman who Brigitte Bardot is a seamstress for, and. You know, they have to go in and steal this file. But but uh, Anthony Perkins playing Harry Compton, that's his uh, his British name. His real name is Nicholas uh, Malkolin. Um, that's uh, like the least Russian name I've ever yeah, heard. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he's um, he sort of um, finally manages to uh, to talk to uh, Penelope. Lightfeather, uh, Brigitte Bardot, and they, um, and she reveals that, uh, oh yeah, I can get you into their house so you can steal this file because his wife is, I'm, I'm her seamstress, and uh, so there's a lot of twists and turns, a lot of comic pratfalls. You know, by the end, I actually was having a really good time. It's just so tightly plotted. It's so, so much like back and forth and and unexpected twists and things. Um, that that I ended up enjoying it, but the a lot of the comedy is a little silly, and also the the version we watched the subtitles were terrible, so I also was having a lot of trouble orienting myself and knowing and understanding what I was supposed to 
knowing what I was supposed to think these characters were supposed to be doing. Like it was just all, all a little bit confusing um, because of the bad subtitles, but uh, yeah, it's a fun little romantic spy comedy that has sequences that are sped up as if they're duplicating a, a silent comedy style. So it's sort of that, that level of slapstick in a lot of this movie. I I wanted to like this movie because it looked stupid and um I that just the the plot is honestly like the plot I don't have a problem with but uh this film it was just slightly unwatchable for me and I don't know <laughs> what it was because parts of it I can actually appreciate like I was I was enjoying this up until a, a point where it got so involved in the spy stuff that it lost the thread of of anything that anyone cares about. I just, it'd be one thing to, if that was actually the plot of this and it isn't the plot of this is that Bridget Bardot is also gorgeous and Anthony Perkins is cute and look at him. That's the plot. That's the plot of this movie. And I don't want to hear Jack about this stupid avalanche file. I don't want to hear this. Like, and, and the problem is it starts to do this lazy humor thing where it just repeats the same jokes over and over and over and over and over and over the stupid jokes about the file are just awful this idea that like oh if you tell your wife the password they'll get around town all over the place and like that joke is made 500 times the password to the file to to the lock where the file is is just the word babe (laughs) (laughs) but like there's things that i actually like i mean there's this beginning where you know, he is meeting her in the restaurant and there's like, you know, a dog being chased under every single table. And it's just Anthony Perkins meeting every foot in the restaurant. Uh, it's stupid, but it's got that kind of like old timey charm. 1920s slapstick meat cute kind of crap. You know, it's like it, it's fun. Like it's really just silly and ridiculous. Or I love there's a scene also in this restaurant where she just keeps eating apple pie over and over again. So then they're like, this is like the fifth one she's eaten. So he orders like, he's like, I'll have another one for her. And they're like, yeah, this is it. We're out of these desserts after you eat this thing. Like just silly stuff. Like I, you know, I like Bridget Bardot has this great laugh in this. (laughs) She's like a truly insane laugh. There's a scene where the two of them are just frolicking in the woods and they're like making out in bushes and they get busted by a cop and stuff like that. You know, like that stuff's fun. Like, or like she brings him back to her grandma's house and he's like, I have to admit to you that I'm a Russian spy. And you know, I love you so much, but I, I can't lie to you anymore. And she's like, Oh, I'm a communist. Like, you know, she just kind of keeps brushing off everything that he thinks is a big deal. And all of this could be really fun. It could be really, really cute. And it's just like the movie gets so caught up in thinking that anyone cares about the spy plot. It wasn't until I got caught up in the plot that I really started enjoying this movie. Really? See, I just hated the plot. I just you're stuck in the same stupid house over and over. They keep making the same joke over and over about stealing this file that you don't even know what what's really uh, why to care about it. I mean, like there's he tries to be a vacuum salesman to get in the first time and then you know, the vacuum goes crazy. And so that all the the people that work in the house recognize him and they know he's always the vacuum salesman. They keep throwing him out of the house. Yeah. I mean, I th- think the there's a lot of plot momentum here and that when things really start amping up, that it's a lot of fun. And Brigitte Bardot is char- très charmant in this movie. She's she's great. Like she Anthony Perkins is fine. I don't quite believe him as 
a dumb guy. You know, he doesn't he's not that good at playing an idiot, I guess, because he's you know, a very different kind of role than what we've seen him play before. But Brigitte Bardot is perfect. Like she's not exactly dumb, but she always like she she always tells the truth no matter what. And it gets her into trouble. So people keep calling her an idiot. And there are a lot of great scenes where like they get stopped by the cop and, um, you know, the cop says, oh, what's going on here? And and she says, oh, we've got a dead spy in the backseat rolled up in a in a in a rug. And uh, and the cop is like, oh, ha, ha, very good. Move along. And when, in fact, they do have a, a dead spy rolled up in a carpet in the, in the backseat. So like I and she plays it perfectly like she I I think she sells this movie more than anything. I liked it just fine, but it's not uh, a peak Anthony Perkins role, I wouldn't say. But it is an early film from uh, from Eduard Molinaro, who went on to do La Cage au Folle, um, most famously. But he's a, you know, he wasn't, I don't think he did it too much in the 60s, but this is one of his earlier films. And he sort of went on to be one of the biggest directors of comedies in France. So uh, it shows promise for his career anyway. I don't know how you can like this and not like Jerry Lewis. <laughs> There are times when Tony Perkins actually kind of looks like Jerry Lewis to me. Yeah, I mean, this is this is Jerry Lewis wheelhouse. I think Jerry Lewis probably would have done a better job directing it. But mm. I think Brigitte Bardot is funnier than in this than Jerry Lewis is in anything. She just I couldn't I could not get into her in this, man. She was she was too dumb. I mean, the ending was fun. You know, like there there's like a a very predictable twist ending to this that I thought was actually, you know, I wish that it, that it had gotten there sooner than I would have enjoyed more of it. But instead of like just endless file stealing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does. It's it's just it's too long. It's too long. If this movie was like an hour long, it would have been great. If it's like it's like close to two hours of just the same joke. I don't know. It's well, fine. let's move on to what's definitely one of the highlights of of our uh, movie watching experience for this episode. The Fool Killer, 1965. This was absolutely my favorite film that we watched for this episode and it's directed by Servando Gonzalez who did the scapular film that we just covered in our Mexican horror episode which was a listen to that one too this whole episode's about telling you to listen to other episodes of Cinema 60 but that movie was so good and this movie is so good and I think we're both like full-on Servando Gonzalez fans now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we need to watch everything that he did. And I we already watched like one fourth of it, unfortunately, but we might need to just do an episode for him because these two movies are so good. Yeah. And nobody's ever heard of this guy. Like I've tried to find some information on him and he won an award at some obscure film festival one time. But nobody, you know, nobody talks about Servando Gonzalez and he makes, you know, these two movies of his we've seen are terrific. Really terrific, visually terrific, great plots, atmospheric, creepy, fun. I'm surprised. This movie, I like, I'm shocked that 
the Coen brothers didn't make this movie, <laughs> remake this movie. It's like such a Coen brother film. So the plot is about this young boy named George, who's played by Edward Albert. Son who... of Eddie Albert from Green Acres. <laughs> oh, all right. He is living with some foster parents. And this is, I think this takes place like right after the Civil War. Uh, and, you know, in the U.S., I think they shot this in Mexico, but it's in a, it's meant to be, it's a, based on an American book that I actually bought after I watched this. I was like, <laughs> I got to read this book. But um, yeah, so it uh, also written by a woman. The um, 12-year-old boy named George, he runs away from his foster parents who just like to beat him all the time. You know, they're always like, oh, you didn't do your chores. They beat him. And, you know, he's sick and tired of it. He never knew his parents. And uh, so he just like, you know, hops on a freight train and uh, gets gets out of Dodge where he then meets this um, homeless man called Dirty Jim Jelliman, <laughs> who looks exactly like what you would picture a man named Dirty Jim looks like. He, you know, he like lives in this total beat shack. beat up shack, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And at first you think he's going to be, you know, made like a creepy old man, but he ends up being actually kind of chill. You know, he sort of enjoys the the company of George and he, you know, just likes having someone to speak to. He ends up sharing some of his, you know, the meager amount of food that he has with him. They actually both get along pretty well and, and George ends up kind of moving in with him. At a certain point, George is trying to sweep the floor and Jim is like, you know, why are you sweeping the floor, boy? Like, you know, that's that's a that's a fool. The fool killer is going to get you. That's a fool's errand. And George is like, what's a fool killer? And Jim is like, oh, he's an eight foot tall man who's like really skinny. And he chops you up if you're a fool, if you act a damn fool. <laughs> <laughs> That's his line of work. You know, George is is just horrified because he's like still, you know, he's like a young boy. He's like 12 or whatever. He's he's so and and Jim is like, you know, like the Lord made dogs for killing cats and cats for killing rats. And then he made the fool killer for killing fools. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't mean to scare you, but that's the fool killer. And he's like, have you met this man? He's like, yeah, I met him once, you know, but he didn't he didn't kill me because I wasn't finna to be a fool, you know, like. And of course, Dirty Jim is telling him about the fool killer while he's trying to go to sleep one night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he's terrified. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, he's just like totally horrified. So eventually he ends up running away from, you know, he gets tired of being around old Dirty Jim. Well, he gets sick and and Jim is not no kind of parent figure, can't take care of him. And uh, so so this woman in town has to sort of care for George because he's. What's what's Dirty Jim gonna do for a sick twelve year old kid? Yeah, and then he, there's this little girl who tries to tries to kiss him, but he uh, he escapes. <laughs> <laughs> he ends up getting attacked by uh, none other than Anthony Perkins, who's playing this this guy named Milo. He's just this weirdo who's camping out in the middle of nowhere, and and George is is weirded out <laughs> like fully. And and Milo, he apologizes. He apologizes for coming at him rough. But, um, you know, you get this sense that, that, you know, Milo has this he has this hundred yard stare. And you you learn as they as the two of them end up also kind of like shacking up and being buddies. The two of them end up being travel buddies. And, and, you know, George ends up being sort of fascinated by him because he's this older man, but he's also young and he seems to be okay on his own. And so. You know, they they have this sort of kinship. 
and the, they <laughs> swim naked together, you know, like when, like men do. And you start to realize that actually Perkins it has amnesia and he has like PTSD from the Civil War. And that's part of why he's sort of going around by himself. He doesn't really know what he's doing or where he's going. And George starts to think, well, maybe this is maybe he's the fool killer because, you know, he's this tall, skinny guy uh, and he's like a little bit scary. But but yeah. And so, I mean, it's pretty much the movie. I don't want to like I could sit here and recount every single detail, which is what I kind of want to do because I just like loved it. Yeah, it's really episodic. So it sort of goes from one thing to the next scene. And there's a really amazing like revival meeting scene in a tent with this preacher who is like speaking in tongues. Yeah. And, and, you know, all this fire and brimstone stuff. And uh, and it really pisses off Milo. Like it really pisses off Perkins (laughs) because he knows it's bullshit. And then he ends up dead, the reverend. So, uh, you know, more more fuel for the full killer fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was such a good movie. And this was such a great, like, a slice of Americana kind of film. That's such a character-based film with just all of these weird little bits and pieces of America that, that George travels through. Yeah, it really it has, has the feel of sort of a, a Disney live action film from the time because it's like based on this kid and it like when he's sort of frolicking frolicking in the field it's got sort of this lighthearted music but then it gets so dark too like it goes <laughs> to really like creepy places that it, you're not disney at all and sort of the combination of the two is really like it's it's jarring but it totally works and the this is another one where the cinematography is great and there's some really like interesting camera tricks that it does like at one point milo anthony perkins is rolling around on the on the ground rolling down a hill because he his uh like his his head injury flares up and he's uh he's in pain and and you the the camera sort of rolls around on the ground with him and you see like yeah like he's holding the camera it's like this almost like a snorri cam sort of style thing where you it's like it's amazing. It's this great breakdown scene where he's he's rolling in the grass. And the yeah, and the and the revival tent scene is just so like intensely shot. It's uh, you know, all these close up of the people close ups of the people in the audience just in their fervor and just it's a yeah, I, it's just impressive. The whole movie is really impressive and more people should know about it. like we were saying about the scapular when we covered that one. It's like why don't people know about this movie? Like you just have to see like any three minutes of it and you recognize that you're seeing a like great piece of cinema. It's yeah. People, people need to know about Servando. The thing that's also just so amazing about this is just that, as you said, it's like this story about this little boy, but it's just such a, there's such a palpable loneliness at the heart of this whole film where, you know, it really is just about like, you know, the, it never gets corny. It never gets cheesy and it never tries to like act like, well, you know, they, they don't use him. They don't use the main character as a young boy just because he's naive. He is so desperate to cling on to anything and, and learn about things. And he's so desperate to, you know, have some sense of belonging. And that's such an important part of this entire film for every single character. And that's part of what makes that you know, wild church uh, tent scene so great is that, you know, he says basically to to Milo, like, 
I've never even been to one of those, you know, like, can we go? And Milo's like, that place kind of sucks. Like, you don't want to go there. <laughs> and he's like, but, you know, like, I, I just want to know, like, I just, I, you know, I've never seen anything like it. And he's so in, like enthralled by it and enraptured. And you kind of get the sense of like, you know, what, what does make people go to these churches and, you know, the, the way that you get this sense of camaraderie, even though it's sort of built upon this like inherently negative uh, accusation that you're a sinner and you need to repent. And the, the film's so thoughtful uh, to everyone and, and to Perkins. I think it's so cool to also have this film that really is like actively dealing with someone from the civil war with PTSD plays out a little bit Hollywood mental illness, but like there is this like really like cold heart to what his character is dealing with. And so all of that stuff is really what grips me. Like that's my favorite kind of, film and, and story in general and then plus this like myth of like you know this kid trying to figure out what what's actually real and what's fake and then realizing that reality can be just as scary or worse than you know this idea of a an eight foot tall man that hacks you to death if you're <laughs> a fool uh so you know it, it's this great like it's like it, almost like a coming of age tale in that sense but then on top of all of that freaking Cervando's like amazing direction and all these like great scenes, these like beautifully directed scenes with just stunning images. And this is a black and white film. It, it is so textured and, and visually impressive. I mean, there's stuff in here where again, like it, it, it feels so modern. I love this so much. <laughs> and it, and it works on a lot of levels too. I mean, it's got all these great larger than life characters, but they also, each of these characters represent something like I, yeah. I hate to, I, it's, I hate to call a movie allegorical because that scares people away, but it does, it's not like allegorical in, in the sense where, oh, I didn't, I didn't understand what that movie meant because you don't need to sort of appreciate what everything is like meant to represent necessarily, but it's, you know, it's, it's doing this whole, like Milo represents freedom for George and, and then, but he's also like is missing the comfort of having, you know, this, this family stability and you know he's sort of torn between these two extremes and every like every character sort of represents something some push or pull in in you know george's own like you know desires and and needs and and it it just i i'd love to watch this movie a few more times and just examine like what what it really is all about because it definitely gives you plenty to think about yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I'm like thrilled to rewatch this. I, it's rare. I, I so rarely uh, want to, to rewatch a film so quickly after I've, I've seen it for the first time. Like, I'm really like, we, you know, we've talked about this. Like, I'm, I'm one of those, like, I'll watch it once and then 10 years later, I want to revisit it kind of person. And that's even for movies that I love. But like this one gave me that same sort of feeling that like seconds did. Like I wanted to rewatch it like immediately. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just so cool. So I'll let you know. And the and the woman from from seconds is in this also. Maybe yeah. that's why you were thinking seconds. Uh, Salome Yens. Well, anyway, after the Fool Killer, Tony went back to France uh, for a cameo in uh, in a movie we referred to in the Coppola episode, and are not going to talk about today because it's just a tiny role for for Tony and it's uh, is Paris burning the French resistance movie where uh, where the Germans are trying to blow up Paris and, and everybody's trying to keep them from doing that. I don't like the movie very much. I don't, I don't know if we'll ever get to this thing. This, this all-star yeah, like giant, <laughs> giant behemoth of a movie from 1966 directed by Rene Clement. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it's there. It's, we probably should discuss it at some point, but 
today is not the day. So we'll move on to the Champagne Murders, uh, directed by Claude Chabrol. Nineteen sixty-seven film, first movie we watched for this episode that was in color. And oh yeah, no shit, huh? Yeah, <laughs> you know Claude Chabrol is one of the um, you know lesser talked about uh, French New Wave Cahiers de Cinema guys, but he's one of my favorites. Jenna doesn't like him very much, but I, am, you know, <laughs> my my goal is to watch every one of his many many movies that he made, and I'm I'm getting there. Wait, but um, can we just say that we figured out the reason why I don't like him very much is because of the fact that you've been like forcing all of his like lesser <laughs> films on me and I haven't seen any any of the big ones. <laughs> like I've only seen these like, you know, throwaway films nobody remembers that you're just like check checking off on a list. Yeah, but it's Anthony Perkins. It's not my fault. I didn't even I didn't even choose this one. I actually like this one quite a bit. Um, but maybe you do have to be a Claude Chabrol fan. It's him doing his, you know, he's in his kind of Patricia Highsmith mode. The last movie of his that we talked about was Les Biches, which was a gender swap remake of The Talented Mr. Ripley or Purple Noon or whatever the original Highsmith novel was called. Um, and this one is, you know, another like murder am amongst the the wealthy and uh, very, very you know, rabidly anti-bourgeois, like most of uh, Claude Chabrol's movies, he he hates the rich, <laughs> and and uh, you know most of his movies seem to be about that. And maybe that's part of what I like about his movies so much. So the beginning of the movie is um, Tony Perkins uh, is an American. This movie is in French, but he's he's an American, so he's speaking French with an American accent. Uh, and his buddy, he plays Christopher, and his, he's hanging out with his buddy Paul, and they're uh, they're out whoring together like they seem to like to do. Um, but this this uh, this one goes bad. They they go they take this uh, prostitute out to in, to the middle of the woods, and it's uh, it's Paul's turn, and Christopher wanders off. But then they get attacked by these you know dudes out in the woods who uh, end up killing the woman, and then uh, you know think they're attempting to kill uh, Paul, Maurice Rene, um, and they smash his head against the windshield, but he doesn't end up dying. He just ends up going to the hospital for a year, and uh, another movie about a guy with a, with a serious head injury. And he, so he's a, uh, he's a champagne magnate. His, his family, the, the Wagner family is, uh, you know, famous for making the champagne. But while he's in the hospital, he has, the company gets taken over by, uh, Christine Yvonne Fruneau plays her and, uh, she ends up like buying the company because Paul is, is sort of useless. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's recovering, but he's still a little bit off. Um, and, sh and she's like at the, point of trying to sell the company to some rich Americans and uh but they don't want to buy it without the Wagner name and uh and Paul owns that name so she's trying to to buy his name from him so so she can sell the champagne company with his name and and this is all you know it's all unimportant this is all just sort of the background to this these champagne murders um that happen Paul has um 
you know, set his buddy Christopher up with Christine and, and because he's, um, you know, the sort of gigolo who's um, attaching himself to rich women. And uh, Paul thinks, well, Mary, Mary Christine, this woman who's running my company and you can keep an eye on it and you can profit off of her and and we'll both neither of us will have to do anything. She can do all the work and we'll just, you know, rake in the dough that uh, that this champagne company makes and uh, things will be great. But, uh, you know, things are going badly with the sales so, and Christine isn't buying Christopher the, the yacht that he wants. And uh, and then women start to get murdered. <laughs> and Paul sort of I, I mean, I would say that Paul is the main character in this movie more than than Anthony Perkins is. We're sort of involved. We're, we're sort of inside his head for a lot of this because he because of his brain injury, he's not sure if these women who are getting murdered, um, it, it, he doesn't know if he's the one who's been doing it or not. If he's not the one who's actually murdering them, he's clearly being set up so that people think that he's the one who's doing it. And it could be Christine trying to like get him in trouble so that he'll sign over his name to her or, you know, we don't know what, exactly what's going on. So it does become a bit of a Hitchcockian thriller. And Hitchcock, of course, is uh, the the hero of Claude Chabrol, as he is most of the, the Cahiers de Cinema people. Jenna was complaining that this movie wasn't Hitchcockian enough for her, and she thought that she was going to get some Hitchcock, and uh, just, just having Tony Perkins in there wasn't wasn't Hitchcockian enough for her. She wanted more. I said that? Yeah, you said- I you don't even you, like Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah, but you yeah. said you wanted, you wanted thrills and suspense, and you weren't getting any. <laughs> no, I said I'm missing a piece of the puzzle when it comes to Chabrol, because I didn't understand what any of this was about. I just, you know, like, I, I, there's parts of this that is a little bit charming but i mean for the most part it just feels like a genre ripoff like it just is i you know it just seems like like a made for tv movie <laughs> like i just didn't get anything i you know i i i didn't feel like i was getting a political message i didn't feel like i was getting a, a movie i didn't feel like a, i just felt like such a I, and granted we were watching like the sort of like really crummy vhs rip which I think is part of the maybe the issue with a lot of these like there there is, you know, it's like films are, are visual. And when you're watching something that just looks like crap, it's hard to get involved because you, can, you can't see anything half the time. So maybe that's really my biggest problem was the the version of this. Like I would be open to rewatching this because there's interesting stuff. Like I like this weird there's a there's a handful of good one liners. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like I like where a uh, guy like destroys a TV and Perkins like, well, at least it happened on a Monday as he like thumbs through a TV guide and stuff like that. Or like, you know, they're at this like really weird artist party and he's like, where did you find all these creatures? And she's like under rocks at low tide, you know, like this is mm -hmm. like kind of these throwaway like droll lines I, I think are pretty amusing. And some of the sets were kind of cool, like that artist party that was just like very strange but just dragged on and on and on. I just didn't understand what I was waiting for, like at all. I, you know, I just, I didn't care. The pacing isn't great. I have to, I have to admit. And there isn't anybody to like in this movie. Like there's no, nobody that you identify with. Everybody's a jerk, especially Anthony Perkins. Which would have been fine if they were like intrigued. It's just that like you don't know anything about them other than they're jerks. Like it just feels so like, it, you know, it feels so sketchy. It feels so uh, dismissive in, in a lot of ways. And then the ending is actually kind of neat. Like the the final <laughs> five minutes of this, I actually th thought were kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a great ending. 
like almost like De Palma esque. <laughs> yeah, another, another Hitchcock, Hitchcock obsessed person. Yeah, like it, it was actually like the the last five minutes were were good, and I was like, well, I wish this was in a better movie. <laughs> <laughs> I just get off on how much Chabrol hates rich people, and I think it's fun to watch him having them digging their own graves and just being horrible and feeling like, oh, none of none of these people who who are getting murdered matter. They're not rich. They're not they're not us. So it doesn't matter. You know, we don't we don't have to care about these dead people. It only matters like how it reflects on us, the scandal that it might cause if if people think that uh, Paul Wagner is is murdering prostitutes. I get off on that and just all the like little sly jokes that Chabrol puts in just because he can they don't mean anything like the names of the characters there's Christopher is with Christine so Chris and Chris and Paul and ends up with a German woman named Paula and there's a whole joke about how their names are similar but he doesn't understand Germans and Jackie is the name that Christopher used when he was in Greece trying to pick up rich old women and and uh the other main character in this is uh Jacqueline the the uh the assistant to Christine. And uh, there's a light spoofiness to everything that uh, Chabrol does that I really enjoy. And he just throws in little Easter eggs like that that don't mean anything. And just so you, you think, oh, isn't that funny? They all, everybody has a has the same name. Or, you know, they, they're pairing these, these characters up, you know, these male and female versions of the same name. And I I mean, I don't know. It doesn't, this, a movie like this doesn't mean anything. Um but it definitely has a Highsmith feel to it. Um, so I think fans of the Ripley books and that sort of thing would would, would enjoy this because it's Christopher pretending to be somebody he's not in order to get rich. And I believe you. Em- embrace your role. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, I'll make you a fan. Well, I liked the first one. I liked uh, the first movie of his that we watched. But these, they go to Leroux. These these uh, bootleg bonds are killing me. Yeah. Well, I can't believe we made it to the <laughs> last movie in in not three hours here. But uh, the the last film here is Pretty Poison. <laughs> Sixty-eight, directed by Noel Black. Now we're back in America, and and still in color. His first American film since Psycho. This movie was a joy for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I'd never seen it before. I think this was your second watch, though, right? Yeah, this is this is one of the movies that I had to watch because it was in Danny Peary's cult movies book. So I watched this as soon as I could get my hands on it long ago. But this is the first time since then, and I I like this movie a lot. This is a great, this is like a vicious little movie uh, in in a way that I can get behind. It's about a man named Dennis, played by Perkins, who has just gotten out of a mental institution on parole. Uh, he gets a job in this, I don't even, a chemical factory, like the local chemical factory. He is prone to, to fantasies. He's prone to this sort of mania. And as one day when he's, waiting around to go into work he happens to just see this high school marching band practicing he just becomes enthralled like all the the red goo that he watches drip in his chemical plant 
job where he's like i like i don't even do you know what he was doing at this place we don't really get a general sense of it it's like like a factory that makes chemicals that come out like it's this red chemical in a jar and he has to like watch the production line but then it also has runoff that goes directly into the the river and everyone's like yeah it's a shame (laughs) (laughs) it's like very like oh that's how we got to where we are with the entire planet on fire today kind of throwaway plot point but um so he like he sees these people these these teens in a marching band all wearing red he makes this connection in his head that like the red goo that he has and cheerleaders in red and and this means something and so when he runs into sue ann who's played by tuesday weld he hands her this like bottle and he tells her like to meet him later she's kind of weirded out he's you know young enough that she takes a chance but you know she's meant to be almost 18 in this and he's like a grown man though i'll say tuesday weld was 25 when she did (laughs) i love looking at people's ages you know so basically what what he ends up doing is telling her that he was working for the cia and that she's part of this mission that he needs to accomplish and what they need to do is they need to sabotage the the factory that she that he's working in. It, it's pretty much he has this whole thing about like aliens are infiltrating, uh, and this there this diabolical substance that's being su- put into the water supply. It's the Sausen Field Chemical Factory, and he like offers her drugs and stuff. You know, he's his like psych meds or whatever, and. Um, he like literally, by the way, he's telling her all of this information in Makeout Valley, <laughs> which he <laughs> says is their perfect cover. So then they start making out like, you know, they like straight up end up in, in this sexual relationship. And she also has this mother who is kind of a crummy mother, but, um, you know, wants the best for her daughter, but also thinks her daughter is kind of a, a dumb tramp. So she's not terribly nice. I mean, there's one there's one line in this where I just want to bring it up because I thought it felt kind of like a dig at Perkins. But she asks, like, you know, I think I think she's mixed up with someone and her friends like a man. And she's like, well, yeah, she's not queer. She's not queer. She's mixed up with a man. And you're like, "Uh." (laughs) Mm -hmm. but uh, but yeah, so basically when um, her mother finds out that she's been going around with Perkins Tuesday Weld invites Perkins over to meet the mother who sort of sniffs him out as being a weirdo and she grounds uh, Sue Ann who then basically gets like unhinged from then on out like Sue Ann just her life has meaning now she is so thrilled to have something to do other than high school and it becomes everything to her it becomes more important to the until the fact that it kind of her enthusiasm overtakes Dennis's own enthusiasm for this cia stakeout that he's made up that he knows on some level isn't real because he's gone through the psych ward and he's gone through he has a therapist like the first thing his therapist tells him before he gets off of the psych ward is you know like don't believe in all your fantasies dennis Mm -hmm. uh so you know he he is like he's all into it but he also kind of once she starts to get more into it he starts to realize like oh he doesn't have control anymore and it's no longer fun for him and that's when things start to go really off the rails and uh it's kind of brilliant in that sense because it really is it ends up being this movie about what happens when you when you give something exciting to like really bored suburban 
like misery, you know, when you, when you inject some excitement into that and, and just how out of control it gets, how, how quickly. Yeah, this is, it's kind of a hard movie to talk about because the the movie kind of sets itself up as one thing. The first half you, you think it's, it's, you know, you're, you think it's about Dennis trying to like present himself as really exciting. So this high school girl will sleep with him. And so you're sort of like, you know, that he's sort of using this fantasy of his um, for like sort of nefarious purposes. And, and like, and then this mission that he's on to stop the chemicals from getting dumped into the river. Like, you know, that he really is concerned about this, but the way that he sort of created this fantasy around stopping it is also like, you're, you're sort of like the, the, the synapses aren't, aren't connecting exactly in his head, are they? And, um, and you think that this is what the movie is about, but then like halfway through the movie becomes something else. And it's, brilliant when this change happens and i don't want to talk about what what it is that that happens what what how this movie changes um yeah this is the problem with talking about horror movies i guess is that like you don't want to spoil it because it's like kind of the whole film yeah um but i will go as far as saying that um by the second half Tuesday Weld as Sue Ann really becomes the star of the show. Like you think she's just sort of a little bit too, too innocent high schooler with kind of a naughty edge to her. And she really like, she goes for it at a certain point. She totally pulls it off. I think she does an amazing job in this movie. Like Anthony Perkins is impressive, but he's also, you know, we've seen him do this sort of not quite right character before, but seeing Tuesday Weld, like also playing a sort of unhinged character is uh, like she's she just really like sucks you in and makes this movie something special. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing is that he's Perkins is playing this kind of broadly. And, you know, it's this sort of again, it's this kind of fake Hollywood mental illness. He gets really into something and then he has these sort of depressive uh, you know, breaks and then he gets really into something and he gets these kind of depressive. So it, there is this, there's at least something that sort of feels a little bit real about him. He doesn't feel too like insane. He doesn't feel too uh, made up, but um, her character is just becomes so real <laughs> in, in a really uh, a disturbing kind of way. I mean, like it really is just, you know, I, I love movies that, that go into just, um, how unhinged teen girls are <laughs> and how they can be. Cause I feel like that's definitely a side that we don't, we don't see enough of like you get like girls that are possessed all the time, but I love it when it's just more like, this is a teen girl who gets drunk on power, you know, like who gets drunk on purpose, who, who, when she gets a taste of what Perkins has, which is the sort of agency to just say like, you know, to, to give himself the power to say, I'm, I'm going to save the world. You know, that's, that's really what infects her. And, you know, once she gets a taste of that, she doesn't want to come back from it. And so that's really where you get the, the, the really interesting film here and, and the sort of interesting commentary on middle America and, and just like, you know, how people get whipped up into frenzies about, 
anything, you know, it's like, it makes me think about like, you know, people's obsession with immigrants or whatever. It's like, not that that has anything to do with this film, but just the way that, you know, people will get fixated on this, like one thing. And especially these people that are in a place where, you know, nothing's happening otherwise, <laughs> you know, like the, the thing they're fixated on has absolutely nothing to do with their day to day. And yet like, you know, that's the one thing that's, that they're going to, I'm going to solve this. Like, and this is my one pet project. And, and that this movie kind of taps into that energy and, and it does it really successfully. And Tuesday world is really brilliant in this. And Tuesday world hated making this movie says, says it's the worst thing she ever did. Hated the director. The movie was a total bomb. But uh, it sort of was rescued from obscurity pretty early on. It is a pretty, um, pretty beloved cult movie at this point. Wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people um, out there have seen it um, just because it is, you know, the, you see the title come up as, as you know, on must-see lists and that, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was also sort of the end of uh, Anthony Perkins' career as a as a lead actor in the seventies, he did a lot of stage and, and uh, minor roles and some TV stuff and you know, TV plays and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, the, his, uh, his career sort of is at its peak right at the beginning of the sixties and at the end of the sixties, see him returning to Hollywood and kind of ending his, his career as a, as a Hollywood star. So I want to just say that I'm a huge fan of him in Crimes of Passion <laughs> from 1984. And you, if you were a Perkins fan, you have to watch that. You have to. Don't Google it. Just watch it. <laughs> yeah, he's great in that. Um, but uh, unfortunately, that's, you know, other than a bunch of Psycho sequels. That I heard are pretty good too. Yeah, there's some of them are good. I mean, I haven't seen any of them, but I have heard that some of them are are pretty good. There are at least, I think there there are three sequels to the original with him. There are probably more without him. If you go to backdashrow.com, my friend Carlo covered all of them, and they sounded fun. Hmm. Here, here we have a, a big Hollywood star with a really unusual movie career. So. Um, so we had to cover him on Cinema 60. Like you, you don't get uh, too many big stars at this level who just sort of decide to cancel their big studio contract and go make some some little films in Europe for a while. I'm glad he did because we ended up watching some really pretty interesting things that are not very well known for this episode. Perkins, is, he's an interesting character too. He's it's interesting that that psycho was the thing that made his career like what you know is there an equivalent now <laughs> of somebody who like got famous for being a creep <laughs> i remember ray fines when he played the nazi in uh in schindler's list mm. was you know, sort of became a big star and people couldn't see him as anything but this evil nazi for a while i mean and i it, guess there's old uh bill billy skarsgård that's true. I guess he He's is kind of doing that, but I wouldn't call them. None of these are like A-listers. I guess Fines is is A-list, but or B plus. Yeah, <laughs> he's a big star. I don't know what to what we can take away from his career. Um, I just think it's interesting that you have somebody who, you know, again in the '60s in this this decade that that 
I feel like is typically, you know, is pretty conservative, pretty square. And yet you have this, this guy who becomes a, a, you know, huge star on being basically playing uh, neurodivergent, you know, and playing somebody who doesn't fit in and playing somebody who does not only doesn't fit in, but like doesn't belong in society half the time, or is doing all these taboo roles about, you know, dating older women and, you know, being in love triangles and, you know, all this sort of strange stuff. And so I think that maybe there's something kind of interesting about that. Maybe Psycho kind of helps crack that egg that, that then leads to the, the late 60s, and at which, at which point Perkins is no longer relevant, unfortunately, because that's how that's how the world works. But, um, you know, you can you start something and then and then it goes on without you. But uh, but it's, it you know, re- looking back on his, his work here, I think that there's all of these were good. I mean, like they were all interesting, bare minimum. The stuff I didn't like, I didn't think was like awful, but it got repetitive to watch all of these at once for sure. But yeah, he does end up playing a lot of, um, you know, unstable, idle, rich people, um, you know, n- n- often not very likable. I He's he, I. Is he likable in any of these movies? Not, not really. I Call mean, he story, has a sort of he? charm to him, but yeah, he's he's definitely not afraid to play unlikable. And and a lot of his roles, he's just sort of he's he's playing characters who are pretending to be something else. So he kind of like is if you're a gay male growing up at this time, Anthony Perkins would definitely be someone that would be easily relatable to more than say rock Hudson, who also was an out gay man, but the roles that he played were so manly and masculine and he wasn't really pretending to be anything but this, you know, rugged manly man. Um, You know, we all knew like, you know, you watch pillow talk and there are jokes about him being gay in there, but it's not, you know, it doesn't take away from his sort of uber masculine heterosexual persona that he plays in all his movies. But Anthony Perkins is, you know, he's, he's so much slighter in build and he doesn't have, he's not so like, he's much more vulnerable and less manly masculine. He, he doesn't less of a like, conformist less of a, con- yeah. And he just, all of his roles, every one of these roles, he's like, He's keeping something hidden. He's trying to be something that he's not. And it's, you know, I could see him being very identifiable for for anyone who's looking for someone, you know, for a gay man to identify with in the movies that uh, that he's going to. Um, it's, you know, feels that way to me. And and from from what I understand, it's he he very much was. I mean, I said in the introduction, but was the sort of underground gay icon for you know for people who are looking for for somebody to identify with uh, for looking for themselves in in the movies that he was he played that role for for a good number of people you know again it's so easy to dismiss the 60s as as being such a backwards crappy time and (laughs) it is in a lot of ways but it's also cool to then see some someone like anthony perkins you know rising to the top and in being so open and and everyone sort of again, even though it isn't spoken specifically and overtly, it's it's known, and yet you know it's still he still managed to to work his way through to get somewhere, and that's worth that's better than nothing. Yeah, and once again we you know travel from the beginning of the sixties to the end of the sixties, and we watch these you know taboos being broken and like 
society just changing wholesale from from the beginning of the decade to the end it's fascinating to watch and i think that's why it's why i'm so obsessed with 60s movies i don't know if it's the same for you but just watching the world change as as i watch the the decade progress through its movies is is fascinating to me yeah i mean if you really want to again give psycho the credit for kind of breaking down that door as far as taboos go i mean like this is definitely what a difference, <laughs> you know, from the beginning to the end, I, you know, I couldn't imagine something like pretty poison coming out in the early sixties. It's just way too, it's too raw. And a lot of these movies that came out in France in the early sixties end up just sort of, you know, foreshadowing the seventies for American cinema and horror, especially. So, yeah. So salute to, to Tony Perkins. Che- cheers, Tony. He could, he could murder me. I'd be honored. How many people does he actually murder in the course of the movies that we watched? Oh shit! I didn't give a body count. Well, we it also might be spoilers if we, but really in in the end it's not it's not that many. He kills five people in Psycho. I mean, five people is a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Six people in Psycho. I'm sorry. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.